a lot of it involves the local government deciding that this is something they want to prioritize. And it is going to take some political capital to push back against homeowners. But the other side of that is, if you want your city to remain competitive, if you want companies to be able to hire workers and retain workers, if you want people who move there in their 20s and rent to stick around and buy homes and you know decide to raise their kids there, you have to provide more housing and housing that's more affordable at different price points. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Housing and housing affordability are tremendous issues right now today in the United States. And because we're in an election year, and even if we weren't in an election year, a lot of this conversation has to do with blame. Who do we point the finger at as being responsible for these high, unaffordable housing prices? Who can we blame? And then what is the simple kind of silver bullet solution we can come up with to fix this? I came across a great article from the Brookings Institute by someone named Jenny Schutz. And I asked her if she'd be willing to come on the podcast and talk with us today. Jenny is a uh, with the Metropolitan Policy Program there at Brookings with the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. She is an urban economist, studies land use and housing with Brookings, and she agreed. And so, Jenny, uh, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I feel like I want to blame someone for the housing affordability as a big picture. Why is it more complicated than that? Well, housing markets are complicated, and where we build, what kind of housing we build, what we don't build, and how expensive housing is depends on a lot of factors. So it's difficult to point the finger to exactly one person, um, and in part because we've got lots of different individual groups of voters and housing consumers, as well as people in the housing industry who have vested interests in different parts of the production system that we have set up. You talk in this article, you write about the difference between developers and home builders. And I thought right off the bat, that's an interesting thing for people to draw a distinction on because a lot of times when you're seeing permits be issued and buildings go up and what have you, people don't distinguish between the two. Can can we start with that and why that's an important distinction? What's the difference between a developer and someone who builds homes? Yeah, So probably the easiest context to think about this is what we call greenfields development. So there's undeveloped land on the edge of an urban area. Often this is land that's been used for agriculture beforehand. And a developer will see this and think that's a nice parcel of land to build a new subdivision. The initial stage of the process involves getting either ownership or control of the land, so either buying the farm outright or buying an option. Um, So the, the existing landowner comes on as a partner in the deal. And then before you can start breaking ground and actually building things, you have to get permission from the local government. So if the land is used as a farm now, it has to be changed in its zoning to allow it to be used for residential. Um, And so that's a negotiation. Generally, the developer goes to the local government, which may be county supervisors or a city council or zoning board, says, I want to build 200 houses on this plot of land. Can you change the zoning to allow me to do that? And what do I have to do in order to get permission? Um, And so this is then a back and forth. How many houses do you want to build? How many houses will they let you build? 
generally the local government will say, well, because there are no roads on there and the water and sewer lines from the existing development don't go out that far, you have to either pay for that or put it in yourself. Um, so there's a whole set of procedures around getting permission to do a development and then essentially plotting out where the houses are, will go, where the roads will go, the infrastructure, and all of that is the first stage of development before construction of actual houses happens. So the developer is the person who takes it from a parcel of land with a bunch of you know agriculture on it to finished lots and infrastructure, and then will generally turn it over to a home builder. The builder is the guy who comes in and actually puts up a bunch of houses on the finished lots. Um, but that can be several years down the line from when the project starts. I was going to say this development process is kind of like an overnight thing, right? It just happens very easily and predictable. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, they, the length of time that it takes to do development varies a lot across different parts of the country. So typically the kind of thing that I've been describing, a new suburban subdivision that's out in kind of an undeveloped area, that's usually the quickest and easiest kind of development to get permission for because by definition, there aren't neighbors. If you're trying to do infill development, for instance, um, a parking lot in a, a downtown area, a developer might want to put up an apartment building. So that's usually a complicated process because you have to go through, again, this sort of city permissions. But when you're building in a developed area already, there are a lot of neighbors. And neighbors, as it turns out, don't usually like change in their neighborhood. And so in order to get permission to build housing closer in, you have to convince the neighbors that it's okay. So when you are out seeing someone pounding nails and hauling in sheetrock and what have you, that sometimes is, but often is a very different person and a very different process than the person who's actually putting the deal together. That's absolutely right. And in fact, big development projects um, get fragmented into lots of different companies who each do a small stage of it, partly in order to spread the risk across multiple different financial entities or companies. You know, So it's not that unusual in, say, D.C. or San Francisco or New York for it to take 12 to 15 years to build an apartment building. And no one company wants to be on the hook financially for that entire length of time before they get paid. So breaking up the development process into these stages and sort of one company comes in and does the permitting, another one does the infrastructure, another one does the actual construction, and each one gets a chance to sort of get out and sell it to the next person at the end of that um, makes it easier for companies to get something finished. Right, right. I want to talk about that time frame because what you just described, this kind of daisy chain of, you know, I limit my risk by essentially having it for a set period of time, doing a set task that I'm good at and then handing it on is almost a response to the complicating nature of doing this. Let me give you a, just a brief story. In, back in the early 2000s, I ran my own planning and engineering company, and we did a lot of permitting work for small cities. The housing market crashed in 2008, but the platting market, the market for actually doing development work, crashed in 2006. 2006, 2007, we didn't see any requests for new developments. So by the time we got to 2008, like that market had been dried up for a couple of years. I work in small towns and rural areas where things tend to move a lot more quickly. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of, and I want to maybe focus first on the time uncertainty and then the outcome uncertainty, the role of uncertainty in affecting the ultimate costs of what people pay for housing. 
Yeah, that's probably the biggest factor right now in driving up costs. Um, It's not just that it takes 10 or 12 years to get an apartment building finished or to get a new subdivision done. It's that a developer doesn't know going in up front how long it will take and where exactly in the process things are going to get held up. Um, So we've largely moved to a discretionary development process where almost every large project is a case-by-case negotiation between the developer, the local government, and very often the residents who already live there, separate from the local government entity. In each of these cases, you you have to go ask permission for a rezoning. You have to do an environmental impact review. um, You may have to do negotiations over how much infrastructure or does the developer need to make contributions to build a new elementary school if there are going to be extra kids moving in? Every single one of these is an individual negotiation and often with different agencies within the same government. So you may have to be talking to you know, four or five different agencies within the same city. Each one of these could go wrong, could ask you to go back and make revisions. Even for things like the neighbors don't like the kind of material you're using on the exterior of the building. and Rather than using vinyl siding, they want you to use brick cladding. And so then you have to go back to your architect and your contractors and rewrite a bunch of the orders for materials. So every single one of those changes costs money. And at any one of those stages, it's possible that the project just falls apart, that they pull the rug out. Or as you pointed out in the Great Recession, that the market changes. So imagine if you're working on a project that you started in, say, 2003 or four. It's not finished when the Great Recession hits, but all of a sudden financing dries up and there's no market for the finished project. An awful lot of projects got caught halfway through and just fell apart. I I saw this where we were sitting at the table and you would have the developer there and then the developer's team, which would involve engineers, surveyors. Uh, environmental specialists, attorneys, they don't do this as charity work, right? I mean, ultimately, all those costs come to bear somewhere. That That's in the final sale price, right? That's exactly right. The, the hourly time spent by all of those specialists doing all those different tasks, that has to get wrapped up in the final cost of the project. So the sales prices or rents of the final product reflect exactly how much time and uncertainty and difficulty there is going into it. So for, you know, for local governments that complain that the finished housing is too expensive, the single thing that they could do that would be most useful is make the development process shorter, more streamlined, and more transparent. I've often had developers say to me, I'm happy to meet a very high standard if I know what that is. What's the difference just in your mind between, let's say a process that was guaranteed to take three years, but we knew it would be done in 36 months or a process that could take anywhere from one year to 10 years. How would that affect how a developer would approach a project? Well, it's easier for developers to raise capital if they know when they're going to be able to repay it. So developers aren't usually funding the entire process out of their own pockets. Um, They may get some equity partners. They get loans for various stages of this borrowing money from somebody, either on the debt or equity side and saying, I'm going to borrow some money from you. I'm going to build a whole bunch of houses or apartments and I'll pay you back whenever this is finished, but I have no idea when that's going to be. People will loan you money, but they're going to ask for a much higher interest rate. So some of this is the developers having to pay costs to other people for borrowing their money. If they can say, I'm going to borrow money, but I know that in three years, I'm going to have this finished. You know, I know exactly what it's going to cost me to do it. It would be cheaper for them to get money to do this project. 
The other big difference is who becomes a developer who's successfully able to build in these kinds of environments. In places where the process is long and uncertain, only the big, well-financed developers can carry out a project, You know, can wait that long until they get their returns. The more complicated the process, you need to have somebody who has a lot of experience and who has the local political connections, who knows exactly in what order you ask for permits and who's supposed to be... Uh, who you have to go grease the wheels in order to get your permits. So, you know, the smaller developers who might be interested in doing just a couple of projects every other year really don't get a chance to get into the game in these very complicated environments. I'm going to give you a thought that I keep hearing people say on the ground when when dealing with housing developments. And I want you to put it in this context because I think you just said this, but I, I want to say it a different way and have you react to it. A lot of people feel powerless. Um, a lot of just residents. And they'll say, development is a rigged game. In my town, the only thing we get are people who are part of this good old boys network who are like insiders or people who are big healed money people. This is a rigged game. React to that. Is it a rigged game? And and is that a byproduct of, of maybe what we've, the way we've structured the game itself? Yeah, I don't know if I would say rigged. Um, it's not that the local government necessarily cares who's in the game and who's making money, but we've definitely created these barriers to competition. So as an economist, I like it when markets have lots of suppliers and lots of consumers. You know, if everybody who came out of, say, a new real estate program or an MBA program wanted to become a developer and build houses could do that, you'd have a lot more competition. You'd have more different kinds of developers potentially specializing in different parts of the market. When you make the process so cumbersome and so hard to get in and requires so much inside knowledge, then it is going to be only the bigger companies, the better finance companies, and the ones who already have experience. And of course, you can't gain experience without doing this. So this is essentially a way of cutting out new entrants to the market. You talk in the article about time uncertainty, but you also uh, touch on outcome uncertainty. What do you mean by outcome uncertainty and, and how does that kind of relate to this idea of, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get my approvals. And so it, it drives up my financing costs. It drives up all my costs. What if you don't know what you're actually going to get approved for? How, how does that affect this? One of the parts of the development that frequently gets negotiated is just the number of housing units, which is really fundamental to understanding the profit, right? So going back to the subdivision example, Say the developer wants to build 200 units of housing on a parcel of land. They've figured out their spreadsheets, how much is it going to cost to build those, what's the price that you can sell them for when they're finished, and 200 is sort of the right number of houses to make this project feasible. Then you go to the local government and they say, well, you can build houses here, but we're only going to let you build 100 of them, and you have to keep X percent of the parcel open as open space. So if you have the number of units that you're able to build, but you're still buying the same parcel of land, so the upfront costs both for the permitting and for the land costs are going to be the same, you've got to then spread that land cost across fewer units, which means the finished price of each of the houses has to be higher. So things like changing the number of units you're allowed to build is going to fundamentally change the project finances. One of the things that's become really common in larger cities is that local governments will require developers to make some of the units affordable to low-income households. So essentially, the developer has to cross-subsidize. They can have some market rate units 
and then they have some affordable units, they have to increase the price of the market rate units to cover the low-income ones. But that share, how many low-income units have to be included, is also part of the negotiation. The higher that is, the more the developer needs to raise costs on the market price units. And so, again, that's something where the developer and the city will go back and forth to see what still makes the development pencil. Is it still worth it for the developer to do this while the city getting, essentially, affordable housing for free? Why would... This is a setup question, so go ahead and slam dunk on it. Why would anyone want to build in a place like San Francisco or New York City or one of these places where you have ridiculously complicated regulations, you've got time uncertainty, you've got outcome uncertainty? Why why would anyone go into a market like that trying to build? Because the price of the finished housing is going to be very high. Um, So you're only going to undertake a risky, long project if the profits are going to be worth it in the long run. And in San Francisco, I think the median price now is something like a million dollars. So at least half of the housing units are over a million dollars and they go well above that. Um, So a developer isn't going to build in San Francisco unless they think they're going to be able to charge enormous rents or prices for the finished housing. And of course, the fact that not many developers are in the game and that very few units get permitted means that they've got a bit of market power, monopoly power with their finished housing. This is not part of your your paper that you wrote up, but I'm I'm just interested in how much the accelerating price of housing plays into this confidence factor. I know back in the 2000s, we saw a lot of individuals getting into houses that were bigger and more expensive than they knew they could ultimately afford, largely because the price increases were so great, you could kind of find a way to float it, either through equity loans or through refinancing or what have you. And when the market started to not even go down, but just slow down, I mean, the the increases started to slow down, it completely kind of kneecapped the whole market. How much do uh, the development side of this, how much are they affected by that? You know, the fact that if housing prices go up 5%, 10% a year, I can be pretty confident, even if it takes 10 years, that I'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, developers are definitely forecasting what they think the market is going to be whenever they think they're going to finish. Um, So they're certainly looking at the trends in prices. That's obviously harder to do the farther out you go. So forecasting prices three years from now, there's less chance that there's going to be a global change in the economy. Um, You know, the farther out, the harder it is to do that. And so the greater likelihood that they're just going to miss the market, um, not just in pricing, but that they may be building the wrong type of housing or in the wrong neighborhood. And by the time they're finished, that something else would have been a better use for that parcel. I will say that, you know, we've had some kind of big changes in particularly the lending side since the Great Recession. Lots of the mortgages that were made in the early 2000s either were made to people who didn't really have the income to support it, or the loans had terms that were really hard for households to make, like adjustable rate mortgages. We have much stricter lending requirements now. Fewer people are able to qualify to get a mortgage. So in some sense, we're seeing tightening not just on the supply side, but tightening on the demand side for owner-occupied units. Um, We've seen a lot of interest in building new rental housing at the very high end, in part because a bunch of people who probably 15 years ago would have been home buyers are now renters, and they're staying renters longer in their life. Um, And so developers have definitely responded to that and built more of the high-end rental. I'm trying to get at the fragile nature of this market. It it seems like there's an accelerating, what you're describing is like an accelerating 
upward momentum on price that ultimately, I think in one sense, there's a demand there and then the people in this business point to demand and they say, look, I can do this and I'm pretty confident there's going to be a demand. Yet how much of this is driven by that accelerating price and, and ultimately is fragile because of that? It is helpful to separate out the rental sector from the owner-occupied sector because it's not that easy, especially for multifamily buildings, to switch back and forth. So we actually haven't seen a lot of new building of the high-end condos, you know, in part because of these tightening lending restrictions that not that many people can qualify for a mortgage. And that's tended to be a riskier product in the past. But part of what we're seeing is just everybody needs a place to live. You know, the job market has been strong for a long time. We've had pretty solid wage growth, even at this point at the low end. So everybody needs a place to live and more households have more money to spend on housing costs. It's just determining sort of where they're willing to live or where they're able to live and what kind of product they're able to afford. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of what a big city developer would look like versus someone who works out on the outskirts. And let me give you a specific example. If we look at Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas has a type of developer that is building large units, some rental, some, you know, condo, what have you in the core of the city. And there's a huge demand for that. And they have other developers that are out building, you know, hundreds of single family homes at a time out on the edge. Those tend to be very different people. Why are they different? They're doing different products and they're really using quite different skills. The home building industry in the U.S. is really quite fragmented and has been for a long time. Um, so there are probably 10 or so of the really big home builders who work nationally. And these are builders mostly, not the developers. So uh, companies like KB Homes or Toll Brothers or Lennar, they do essentially the same house in a suburban subdivision all over the country. So the suburbs of Austin and Las Vegas and Atlanta and Chicago, all of those builders are doing essentially the same the same floor plan, the same model um, in a similar kind of setup, in part because they can standardize it. So they learn how to do this. You know, they have some architects on staff. They come up with some basic models of things and they don't have to make changes and they're kind of doing this in a large scale the infill developers who work in central cities, one of the hard parts is every single parcel of land is different. An infill parcel, you know, you're finding either, say, a parking lot or maybe a, a car dealership or an older mall that's ready to be redeveloped. But what that parcel looks like, how big it is, what kind of uh, site preparation you have to do, remediation from the prior uses, you know, what kinds of deals are you negotiating with the neighbors? Who are your neighbors? How hard do they push back? That's different for every single project. So developers call it, you know, the brain damage of figuring out how to make a particular parcel work, a particular site work. And, you know, for the developers who do the infill sites, this is kind of a puzzle. That's the part that they find interesting, even though it's challenging, is figuring out how you position the building, how do you get the maximum number of units that make this feasible. That's a really different project than you've got a whole bunch of acreage and you're going to build, you know, the same house 500 times over. It tends to, it seems to me, like attract a different kind of, uh, of of savviness in terms of the development. I mean, you, you talk a little bit in the article, and, and we mentioned a little bit earlier about the scale needed to operate it this way. 
describe a little bit the the competition in a big city for this. If I'm out of school and I, I've got a, you know, a rich uncle that wants to float me a little bit of money to get my development career started, am I going to Boston or New York or San Francisco or even like Austin and, uh, and getting started in the core of the city or am, am I doing something else? You might go to one of the big cities, but you're not going to set up shop for yourself. You're going to go to work for one of the existing developers. So I actually taught in the real estate program at USC for a number of years. And I taught you know, a lot of students who you know, had been working for a couple of years out of college, came back to get a little more finance, and then wanted to go uh, get a job in the industry. Some of them really wanted to work for themselves. And if you want to do that, you're not going to do ground-up development because it's just too expensive and too complicated. So you might buy an existing older multifamily property, maybe do some rehab, run it for a while, get some operating income. You might try doing a smaller project, so, you know, a, a small parcel where you can do a four-unit building or something like that. But you know, that level of experience and capital, you just can't go into sort of larger development. But we definitely had students who had come out of the program and they would get hired by some of the big developers. They would go work for, you know, a Brookfield or a Forest City Ratner and be sort of lower in the organization, but get experience working on these big, complicated projects. You know, the, the big developers in expensive, regulated cities, that's not a small mom-and-pop family business. That's a really well-capitalized corporation in order to take on that kind of money and risk. Jane Jacobs describes the uh, evolution of a neighborhood in uh, Life and Death of Great American Cities, she, she talks about how new building is needed because there's kind of this filtering process where older buildings, as they start to decline, can fill needs further down on the income spectrum. Uh, people can get into them more affordably. They can try out new things. That's, that's where innovation happens. You describe in your piece something called upward filtering, which intuitively made sense to me, but I hadn't heard it described in that way before, which is kind of the opposite, I think, of what Jane Jacobs described. Talk about the concept of upward filtering. And, and I'm interested in your opinion on whether you think this is a, a positive impact or, or, or maybe like uh, the, uh, the symptom of the disease. Yeah. So we know that housing units can either filter upwards or downwards, and there are different ways to measure filtering, but usually it, you know, it's being inhabited by more or less high-income people than it was before. So if it's filtering downward, the next household moving in is a lower income. You can also think of sort of the quality of the building. So one of the reasons that older housing tends to be cheaper than newer housing is that buildings depreciate over time. So things break, they need to be replaced. It's just not quite as new and up to quality standards is the new stuff. So, you know, housing becomes cheaper if you essentially stop maintaining it to kind of the top level of quality and allow it to kind of degrade a little bit. But you can also keep housing from depreciating and filtering down by investing money in them and maintaining them and fixing them up. And we know that we've seen this in the single family owner occupied market for a long time. So all of the cities that have, say, 150-year-old houses that have been preserved and rehabbed and kept up to code, you know, those units have probably got older for a while and then were rehabbed and filter up in the process. We're seeing upward filtering of multifamily buildings in many of the regulated cities where investors will buy what's a Class B apartment building, do a gut rehab of everything. So put in, 
you know, brand new kitchens with granite countertops and stainless steel appliances. They'll gut rehab all of the the bathrooms, do a makeover to the common space, uh, you know, potentially even things like new elevators and building systems to expand the life of the existing building and make it kind of shiny and new. This is particularly attractive in a place where it's really hard to build new stuff because if you're rehabbing a building, it's a lot easier to get through the regulatory process than for ground up new construction. You know, you're generally not changing the size of the building. And so we see this becoming attractive to developers and investors, buy an old building, fix it up, increase the rent rather than letting it depreciate over time. There's a libertarian argument that if we build more, prices should come down. And that's a very attractive argument because it seems to go exactly to the, you know, just the laws of supply and demand that, you know, we can, we can obviously see that that's the case. Yet there's this pushback and it's often from, you know, progressive housing advocates that say, yeah, but the more we build, we just seem to be building these luxury units and there doesn't seem to be any room for more affordable units. And that does also seem to be often the case. Are you describing the dichotomy here with this upward filtering where we're actually maybe able to go out and build and there's plenty of demand for building, but it's not resulting in lowering prices? There's truth to both of those arguments. I mean, in, it, we can look across cities. The places that have historically built enough new housing when they have population growth have stayed cheaper. They've not had as much increase in housing prices. So we, you know, economists feel pretty confident that if we increase supply enough, that it will at least lower the increase in prices over time. But the progressives who are pointing to the fact that when you build new housing in a particular neighborhood, the cost of that new housing may be higher than the older housing that was there before. That's also true. And part of the reason for this is where we're building and where we're not building. In all cities, the single family neighborhoods, which tend to be occupied by wealthier, older, whiter homeowners, those are places where you basically can't build any new housing at all. Um, Because zoning locks in single family neighborhoods and makes them very hard to change, You've essentially taken anywhere from, you know, 50 to 75% of the land area of a lot of cities off the table altogether for expanding housing. Most of the new housing has to go into neighborhoods that are already fairly dense, that already have multifamily, and that tend to be lower income or neighborhoods of color because that's where you're allowed to do new housing. So the best protection against displacement in low-income communities is to build a lot more new luxury housing in places that are already wealthy and white. That's fascinating. Banks drive some of this investment as well, as do investors and and others who are putting money into uh, these projects. There's the old George Bailey caricature where you you go put your money in the local SNL and then it gets loaned out for people to build the house up the street and all that. Um, that's really not how it's working today, right? I mean, these are these are different markets with different capital flows and and people looking for different things. How does it work today and and how does the finance affect ultimately that affordability? Yeah, there are a couple of different pieces of this. And I should say that this is one of the areas that researchers actually know the least about because global capital flows and capital flows into commercial real estate are really hard to track with existing data. Um, so even people who you know work at the Federal Reserve who see what banks are doing have only a general outline of what's going on in this space. 
What we do know is that the, the construction loan, so the loan from a bank to put up an actual building, not the land development necessarily, but the construction part, those are still done mostly by regional banks because the regional banks know their market. And you know, you're just not going to make a loan to do a new construction project four states away in a market where you don't have eyes on the ground. But particularly on the equity side, so developers get um, partners uh, to put in some equity most of the acquisition, so if a developer builds a brand new multifamily building and then turns around and sells it, the funds for that, that's a global market. Um, and so we see both the kind of traditional real estate investors, things like insurance companies and pension funds who like to park money for a long time and real estate's a great asset class to do that. But we also see all kinds of interesting uh, kind of debt funds, which may be sort of pulling together money from some high net worth individuals, from some individual companies who want to do investments. Private equity has really been getting more active in this space. And there's money coming from all over the world. You know, part of the, the sort of large context for this is we're 10 years into an enormous expansion. Globally, there are giant pots of capital and they're all looking for safe places to park their money. The U.S. is a country that has rule of law, that has strong property rights. So, you know, if you're getting money from, say, Russia or from Saudi Arabia, putting your money in real estate in the U.S. seems like a really good deal. And so there are a lot of capital that are chasing after physical assets to put their money into, and it winds up partly pushing up the prices of our real estate. It's interesting because you would think that, and I think like there's an underlying theory that says the more capital that would be available, the more competitive it would be, and you'd actually be able to drive down prices more. What you're describing is something kind of the opposite, which is we have these opaque capital flows. We have these housing markets that are kind of over-regulated and, and have a lot of uncertainty. And the, and the net result has been almost an asset inflation. Am I getting that right? Is that the way that you describe it? So. Yeah. So if you think about sort of at the local level, we're constraining the supply of new housing. So there are fewer of these buildings available. And then there are a ton of people who essentially want to put their money into these assets. So some of the investors, you know, it's not clear that they're overpaying for the asset, but they're buying something that's likely to hold its value and appreciate over time. And relative to putting your money in a country where there may be a regime change or the government can expropriate your assets, you know, it's worth a premium to put your money in someplace where you know that the rule of law is going to protect it. Obviously, housing is not a, uh, a completely liquid market. It's not one where you can get in today and, and you know, at, at 10 a.m. and get out at noon, you know, the way a stock would be or something like that. How dynamic do you think the market is, though, in terms of some of these large capital flows if there were other competitive options, say interest rates were not at zero or near zero, they were something more market rate or competitive, would, would that actually change, you think, quickly or over the long term prices? Yeah, it's, it's a little hard to know because we don't know exactly who's putting their money into these assets and what their investment goals are. So in some cases, uh, you know, there may be institutions that want to have money specifically in a, in a local market. Um, we know, for instance, that like banks have CRA requirements. And so they're, you know, some of the big investors um, in particular kinds of real estate or in particular locations because they get regulatory credit for this. It's hard to know what these investors would put their money into in another circumstance. The global capital in particular, sort of the more uncertain other parts of the globe are, the more attractive the U.S. looks like as a place for investment. 
Can we talk a little bit about local governments and homeowners? And particularly, there's this dichotomy, particularly at the city level, where people run for council, they run for mayor, they run for political office, and their constituents are saying, housing is unaffordable. We need to do something about this. And they go into office and they say, yeah, we definitely need to do something about this. And maybe even in their heart, they're committed to doing it and want to do it. They have very little actual real financial incentive to do that though, right? I mean, who are some of the constituencies lined up that are essentially benefiting from high housing prices today? Well, you're in pretty good shape if you bought a house in, say, Palo Alto 30 years ago. You're basically sitting on a pile of cash that you have developed just by buying a house and staying in the same place. Um, And so existing homeowners, particularly long-term homeowners, many of whom bought in these high-cost markets when those were relatively affordable places and have just stayed put, those are some of the biggest uh, advocates of keeping supply constraints in place because it protects the value of their property. Well, and and, and if if you're in Palo Alto, you also have, because of Prop 13, ridiculously low taxes comparatively, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And ca- I mean, California is sort of the worst case on all of these, yes. on all of these dimensions. Not only have they had a big increase in housing prices, but long-term homeowners only pay a very small fraction of the market value of their property and property taxes. So people who are trying to move to California and buying houses now are up against people who are, you know, millionaires in real estate who face very low costs from staying in their same location. Um, and there's just an enormous power imbalance between sort of a new renter class and an established homeowner class. Homeowners are the ones who show up to public meetings. They yell at developers. They yell at the mayor. They yell at city council members. They vote in very large numbers. And so, you know, they, they carry an outsized voice in the politics of cities, even big cities that are majority renter, homeowners carry much more political weight than renters do. And renters tend to be a little bit less engaged in the process. So it's it's kind of hard to see actually how we break through this because the entrenched political interests and the entrenched financial interests line up so strongly in favor of the status quo. You didn't mention this in the article, but I, I want to ask you, Local governments themselves, if you're a local government that collects property tax, you have an incentive too to have property values. I mean, you're benefiting in a sense from artificially high property values, right? Yeah, it's not quite that clear because if you allow developers to build more housing units, then you have more homes on which to assess property taxes. We don't have a lot of evidence on what happens to property values if you really expand housing supply a lot because we just never tried doing that. But in most cases, it seems like local governments would be better off allowing more development and having more different parcels of land that they can collect property taxes on. You know, there are a lot of underutilized properties Um, You know, replacing $1 million single-family house with four three-quarter million dollar condos would increase the total value of the property, and the government would collect more money on that. But first, you have to get the single-family homeowner to be willing to do that. Right, right. I remember back in, I can't remember what it was, 2008 or something, Ben Bernanke said something to the effect that, you know, the U.S. economy is the housing market. Is that true today? Have we evolved beyond that or or do you think that we're in a in a similar situation in terms of the impact of housing on our marketplace as we were back in the early 2000s well housing 
has lots of tendrils into different parts of the economy. You know, so obviously construction was a major source of employment during the boom and in some places is today too. So it's generating wages for all the people involved with this. There's a big multiplier effect associated with housing. When somebody buys a house or moves into a new home, you know, beyond just the money to buy the house, the next thing you do is go out and buy a bunch of furniture and decorations. Particularly when you buy a home, people start doing home maintenance projects and you know, they hire landscapers. So there's a lot of money that gets generated relative to the housing market, which is why when the housing market goes into recession, it has big ripple effects. We're seeing a shift, particularly younger younger households are waiting longer to buy homes. The homeownership rate among people under the age of 40 is still substantially below where it was before the crash. And so some of the kind of investment potential we're not seeing, and I think a big question is, if people aren't becoming homeowners as early in their life or just aren't going to buy a home, are they developing savings someplace else? Are they putting extra money in their retirement accounts or you know, just in a pot of savings that's available If not, we're going to have a real problem because this generation isn't going to accumulate as much wealth. If we can come up with other channels of wealth building for them besides homeownership, then I would worry less about the decline. If I'm a city council member, I'm a local uh, advocate, I want housing to be more affordable in my community. What are the things within my control that I could actually go out and, and try to accomplish to make that happen? Well, city councils and mayors and local planning departments can absolutely look at their process and figure out ways to make it more transparent, more streamlined, simpler, even if they want to retain some community input. You know, you can say the developer has to go in front of the community and ask for sign-off and give them information, but limit the number of times they have to ask. Limit the length of time before a final decision gets made, up or down, and the project moves forward. You know, those are things that often don't even have to be changed in code because a lot of the process stuff isn't written down. Um, So changing the zoning code, you know, doing an upzoning like Minneapolis has done, allowing multifamily and single-family neighborhoods, that's going to take sign-off generally from the mayor and the city council. But planning departments can actually do a fair amount on the, the process themselves a lot of it involves the, the local government deciding that this is something they want to prioritize. And it is going to take some political capital to push back against homeowners. But the other side of that is if you want your city to remain competitive, if you want companies to be able to hire workers and retain workers, if you want people who move there in their 20s and rent to stick around and buy homes and you know decide to raise their kids there, you have to provide more housing and housing that's more affordable at different price points. For many years at Strong Towns, we've advocated that cities just take simple steps and allow the next, what we call the next increment of intensity by right. So if you have a, a single family home neighborhood, you should be able to, with, without any permitting friction, build a duplex. Minneapolis did that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of this stuff, it, you don't even have to build new structures necessarily. Sometimes it's just converting an existing structure all of which is stuff that we've done forever. I mean, taking existing homes and splitting them up into multiple apartments. I mean, we've done that when we needed more housing units and the existing units were just too big or too expensive. I feel like we've been pouncing on this for like a decade now and we're starting to see cities move on this. Is this the easiest thing that a place could do today to make housing more affordable? 
I don't know whether it's the easiest thing, but it's probably part of the package. So just allowing single-family neighborhoods to become duplexes or triplexes, that should be part of the mix. And in some places, that would help quite a lot. Cities where that have particularly a strong downtown, that have transit systems, they also really need to be getting as much housing as possible on the really valuable land that's close to jobs and transit. And that's going to take more than just allowing duplexes. I don't want cities to pick one or the other. And in fact, Minneapolis did both of those with their new comprehensive plan. They did really strategic upzoning along transit corridors and the sort of gentle density in the neighborhoods. Do both of those, streamline and simplify the process as much as possible. Of course, the one piece that's really missing, low-income families just aren't going to be able to afford market rate rent because their incomes are so low. And so part of what we're seeing is the federal government has reduced the amount of support it gives to poor families and just to the social safety net in general for decades now. And in some sense, mayors are trying to make up the difference without having nearly the kind of resources at their disposal. I want to ask you one last related question, and you can you can pass on this one if you'd like. We seem to culturally have an agreement that 2001 to 2008 was a housing bubble. And in fact, there's a great article I read in Forbes in 2000 that I I came across a couple of years ago where they had surmised that we were in a housing bubble in two, this was written in 2000 and they were looking back over the last part of the nineties saying, wow, this is a huge housing bubble. That's going to go bad. And then of course we had eight more years of, of housing prices going up. When you look at the graph of it, you know, the, the case Schiller index or what have you, it's clear that we were in an epic housing bubble in that early part of the 2000s. Prices today in many markets are higher. Is this a recovery the way we like to think of it? Or is this just another version of a bubble? Where do you think we're at in that economic cycle? We're definitely not in the same kind of bubble because in part the the rise in prices in the early 2000s was enabled by really cheap capital and by the expansion of uh, sort of the lending market to people who probably shouldn't have qualified for loans or certainly not as much debt as they were taking on. Because lending requirements are tighter, we're not in a bubble the same way. We'll say the vulnerability is an awful lot of the increase in prices is coming from very high growth in incomes at the upper end of the income distribution. If something happens to the tech industry, the finance industry, the sort of really well-paid jobs, the top end of the market will soften. And we're seeing in some places that developers don't necessarily want to be building as much at the top end now because they're worried they're sort of hitting the limits of demand there. The hard part is, of course, we can't predict the big crashes, the, the unexpected things that happen you know, if if there's there will be another recession at some point, we don't know whether that's going to lead with the housing sector or start with something else. And so it's a little bit difficult to see the ripple effects. But I think failing some sort of massive, uh, you know, global recession caused by something outside of the housing sector, it's not easy to see how this really softens much in the short term. The article we've been discussing is Who's to Blame for High Housing Costs? It's More Complicated Than You Think. You've been listening to Jenny Schutz. Jenny, if people want to follow you, this is a fascinating article. You have been amazing. I mean, I I really, uh, this is some great insights. Um, If people want to follow you at the Brookings Institute, what would be the best way to do that? Um, So they're welcome to follow me on Twitter. So my handle is at Jenny underscore Schutz. And they can sign up for the Brookings Metro newsletter um, that has a wrap up of all of our new product. And so they can get that, uh, I think, weekly and it'll tell them all of the new things coming out. 
thank you so much. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Chuck. I enjoyed it. Let's talk again Bye. soon. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.